0: sermon today. Uh, This sermon is being given not because I necessarily wanted to do so, but because I have had several requests over the last months to get around to giving a sermon on this topic. It is one that, frankly, I have basically tried to ignore. I did discuss it uh, when we first began this organization and I was visiting people all around the country uh, in little groups. We discussed the topic to some extent in some of those meetings, and some of you were there at that time, so you'll know some of my thinking on this. But it has to do with God's financial system, as outlined in the Bible, and then more specifically that which bugs and irritates people a lot today, tithing itself. Is tithing required of us today by God. How does His financial plan work? The financial plan, as we just saw in this last announcement, which probably won't be on this tape, but I'll refer to it anyway, the financial plan of the world and of America today is not working. It is about to be destroyed. What about God's plan? And what is the history in ancient Israel, and in the New Testament church, where does it lead us today and what conclusions can we make? Now, the reason that I do not like to bring up tithing or money is because I have seen in my lifetime money abused and misused. I have seen people abused and misused. And there are a lot of people today who feel abused and misused. In this organization, since it began, you have never heard me ask for money, other than saying there's an offering box back there for the feast, do between you and God what God tells you to do, but I have never asked for more, I have never uh, asked, you know, done what they used to do, let's have a silent offering, now let's have a loud offering, now let's have a big offering, now let's have a strange and different offering. Now let's beat Pasadena. Now let's beat Alaska. You know, on and on and on it went, trying to extract more money from people. And this has left people sarcastic. It has left them bitter. It has left them turned off. And some of you, sitting right here before me, have some of those attitudes. And you who are out listening on the telephone have some of those attitudes. And they are scattered throughout the church. And many, many, many people who were formerly in the Worldwide Church of God have quit tithing, thinking that it is no longer necessary. It is interesting in a way that Joe Koch changed tithing, among many other things, and then changed it back again. The only thing that has ever been changed away from and changed back to that I know of today. And when he first said, tithing is not required, he also said, I know that you brethren, being true Christians from the heart, will give more than tithe because you are Christians and now you're not compelled to, therefore you will just simply give more out of the goodness of your hearts than you ever gave before. And when the income plummeted dramatically, (laughs) he soon changed it back and said, we must keep time. Now, I don't know, I don't remember, even if he used scripture, but they're changing everything, basically, the Bible says, and that's the only thing that they have changed back. Now, was it valid to do away with it in the first place? And if it was... Was it valid to go back to it? Why, when you have been able to prove, quote unquote, that it is no longer in force, can you then turn around and say it is? Now, I don't care what people think about this. All I care about is what does God say? I am no one's judge, and I am not going to get on you whether you do or you don't. I am not the policeman of that. God is your judge, and what you do or do not do, he will require of you. I'm going to read the scriptures to you, and I hope to be able to show you what God says or does not say we should do, then it is up to you whether you obey. Now some things I might police to one degree or another because Paul and the apostles did police certain things. Certain things that were harmful to the whole group or were uh, in that sense All what will come to my mind is epidemic. Uh, contagious is the word I'm looking for. Things that would spread through the flock and cause problems they policed. Things that were of a totally personal nature, that were between you and God only, were not policed. So I do not keep track of who sends in what. And then call them up and say, I don't think you're tight. I don't do that. But you will answer to God, not me. Now, in general, I know, because we're a small group, and it's kind of obvious to see where money comes from and where money doesn't come from. But I'm not on a personal vendetta about it one way or another. So I want to get that clear ahead of time. And I I hope that in looking at these scriptures... You will check your attitudes at the door and listen with an open mind, one way or another, to what the scriptures have to say. I know it's hard to check your attitude at the door. There's a, an individual who is against the ministry in all forms, basically, who writes for the journal sometimes, puts his ads in there, pays for them. And he has a nickname for himself. I'm not even going to dignify this with mentioning the name or anything else. But anything the ministry ever did, he is against. And he wrote one about hiding and the monetary system as well. And through his article, it was very obvious that there was an attitude. I have been misused. You have been misused. We have been abused. Therefore, our minds are closed. Brethren, I know we have been abused and misused. I have been abused and misused. But we are not to live in that crippled state. We are rather to be healed. God has been chastening the church, as per Hebrews 12, for quite some time now. And he says, don't remain bitter. Don't remain sarcastic. Don't remain upset. Be healed. Maybe we need to understand why God says what He says, what He means by it, and what His plan and purpose is, and that might relieve some of the confusion. and when the confusion goes, sometimes our minds are clearer and we have not nearly so much difficulty with things as we might have prior to that. So hopefully today we can clear up some things. Now God has a system, Someone mentioned in an article that they had written, a paper I read, about parity, about how there should be a fair price for crops, that the price should be regulated so that the farmer can make a living. Now, I agree that that is true. And there was a price set on farm produce in ancient Israel that was part of God's system, and the farmer could make a living. In fact, almost all of Israel was in a... An agricultural society. Now, There were other things that were done. There were craftsmen back then of gold and there were carpenters and various other things, but the primary emphasis in the society was agriculture. And they had to have a fair price, so they had the various denominations for crops set, whether it be a bushel basket or various other things. I want to start where God starts. Let's go to Genesis 14 and see what there was before Moses. Genesis 14. Now, I know some of you will have some objections to some things that I say at the beginning. Please hold your objections. I will try to get to them and answer them and Maybe we can come to correct conclusions by the end. But if you close your mind now, because of something I might say at this point, you say, well, that didn't apply or doesn't apply. Wait. Please reserve the judgment until we finish this and see what we come up with then. Now, this is the case of Abraham and his relationship with Melchizedek, king of Salem. We know from Hebrews that this is speaking directly of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 shows that. Brought forth bread and wine. I'm in verse 18 of Genesis 14. And he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hands. So Christ is telling uh, Abraham what his attitude should be. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said, Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the eternal, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." Save only that which the young men had eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Canaan, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So, somewhere, Abraham got the idea of giving 10% to Melchizedek, or to God, because Melchizedek was God, the, the one who had become Jesus Christ. There was nothing to this point in man's history that indicates that they should be tithing, is there? On the other hand, there was nothing in Scripture which indicated that Cain and Abel should be giving sacrifices of that which they produced. Was there? There are some things that God must have instructed Adam and Eve in, Cain and Abel in, and mankind in general in. Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. Where did he learn Righteousness. Where did he get it? Where did the concept come from? God must have verbally expressed many of these things to Adam and Eve, who passed them along to Cain and Abel. Though they were not yet set down in law and codified, they were instructions from God. Now some will say, well, we must have gotten it from Gentile neighbors around. Not necessarily. It's easy to say that, But could it be possible the Gentile neighbors got it from God's people? That's just as likely, isn't it? Did God not institute tithing under the law of Moses? Now, did God, pardon me, did God borrow the tithing system from pagan neighbors around? I don't think so. I think that gives weight to the fact that pagan neighbors might have gotten it originally from Israel, if we're going to speculate on this a little bit. Abraham certainly got the idea somewhere, didn't he? And it appears that Melchizedek was very well pleased with Abraham as a result of him giving a tithe of the spoils of war. Now, there are those who will say, yes, there was tithing, but it was only on agricultural products. The spoils of war are not necessarily agricultural products, are they? To open that can of worms early. What are the spoils of war? Swords, gold, silver, jewelry, uh, food, clothing, chariots, horses, food that they might have had with them. The spoils of war are all kinds of products. And Abraham saw fit to give them to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek seemed very happy to receive them. So this was a win-win situation for Melchizedek and for Abraham. So the first time the tithe is mentioned in the Bible, it is mentioned in a very positive sense. Very positive sense. Let's go to the second time. Genesis 28. <laughs> now this is after Jacob had had the ladder going up to heaven and so on, the dream, and had slept on the pillar stone. Verse 18 of Genesis 28. Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone they had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, or that is, the house of God. But the name of that city was called Lutz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. Raiment isn't necessarily an agricultural product, is it? It can be wool or cotton. Today it can be oil (laughs) or whatever. So that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, And of all that you shall give me, I will surely give the tenth to you. Jacob, as a result of what has happened in his life and his calling from God, came up with this idea that he would make a commitment that anything God would ever give him, he would give ten percent to God. didn't matter the source of where it came from, he would give a tenth of it to God. Now, what a novel idea. Where did he come up with such a thought? Why didn't he say 8% or 13% or 40% or 2%? Why did he come up with 10%? It must have already been in his background teaching and training. Why would Abraham come up with 10% if it had not emanated from God originally? Why would Jacob come up with 10% the same unless he had either heard of Abraham's commitment or had learned it as he grew up from his forebears? I don't think just by happenstance or by pagans around that they would have come up with that number, both of them. just don't think so. But here, Jacob was committing his life to God. And with that commitment came giving ten percent of all that he would ever receive to God. There's another theory going around that you only tithe every three years, and we'll get to that later on. But may I interject here, that if he was going to give a tenth to God of all that he received, then maybe God only gave him something every three years. Follow the logic. If you're only to tithe every three years, then you must not receive anything those other three other two years if you're going to give a tenth of all that you receive to God. All right, those are very preliminary thoughts. Now let's go to Leviticus 25 because God begins to lay out a financial plan for Israel. We need to understand, I think, the thinking behind God's financial structure in order to understand about tithing and all the ramifications of tithing. Because God had a perfect financial plan that would keep people out of debt. It would give them plenty. And they could prosper on the earth if they followed this plan. Unfortunately, Israel never really followed the plan. They followed parts of it here and there. Leviticus 25, the Lord spoke to Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, here is how you'll set up your society, in other words. You're going to go into a land I'm going to give you It's a gift. Here's what you're to do. Then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the eternal. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. That which grows of its own accord of the harvest you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine undressed, For it is a year of rest to the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for you and for your servant, and for your maid, and for your hired servant, and for the stranger that sojourns with you, for your cattle, for your beasts that are in your land, shall all the increase thereof be meat. And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto you, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto you forty-nine years. Then shall you cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month and the day of atonement, shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your lands. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year. We have a, a whole Sabbath here. Hallow the fiftieth year. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of your vine undressed, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of this jubilee you shall return every man unto his possessions. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy anything of your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. And then he explains that according to the years of the jubilee is how you buy and sell land. In other words, it was only a lease. That's all it was. You could not buy and own land that would go to your heirs and assigns forever and ever as we do land contracts today, or land sales. You could only lease that land for the period of time left in the jubilee. If you were in the third year of the Jubilee, you could have a 46-year lease. If you were in the 46th year of the land, you could only have a three- or four-year lease, depending on the time of the year. Because that land was going back to those who owned it originally, the original families to whom it was assigned when they went into the land, that land would go back to. That way, if somebody had goofed, or been a drunk or a wastrel and had lost his inheritance or his land it would be given back to his children at the beginning of the Jubilee year. So you could not buy and, love and own land forever supposedly as we or couldn't do it as we supposedly can today. It had to go back. So really you only rented it from someone until the Jubilee came. So Obviously, if you've only got three years left till jubilee, you're not going to be that land's not going to be near as worth as much as if you lease it two years after a jubilee. So the declining value of that rental or lease is based on where you are in the jubilee cycle. Now what God did then is He set up a system that corrected itself every 50 years. Uh, let's see, I want to go to. Deuteronomy 15 here a moment too. We'll put all this together in a little bit. Deuteronomy 15, At the end of every seven years you shall make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lends ought unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may exact it again, but that which is yours with your brother your hand shall release, release save when there shall be no, more, no poor among you. If there's not any poor people, then the year of release did not apply. You could go ahead and exact wages of people, or that would say it borrowed, you could go ahead and claim after seven years. But there's never been a time in history when there've been never been poor among us, and doesn't didn't Christ or didn't the Proverbs say that the poor will always be among you? So, in actual practical application, there is never a time when the year of release should not be kept. Only verse five: If you carefully hearken to the voice of the eternal your God, to observe to do all these commandments that I command you this day. For the Lord your God blesses you as he promised you, and you shall lend them to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. God told Israel they were never to borrow money from other nations. Today, in the nations of Israel, in America I'm speaking of in particular, we owe trillions of dollars. To other nations and their governments, we have law- they, We have borrowed money from them in the trillions by selling government securities, money that we are required to pay back. They are in a legal position to foreclose on our land. They hold our mortgage, and it is not long before they are going to see that the only hope of recovering. That which they have loaned us is to come and get it. That's the position we have put ourselves in. The Gentile is rising up high above us, and we are being abased and made low. God told us not to get ourselves in this position, but we have done it. So, in Israel, you had a 50-year cycle and it consisted of seven, seven-year periods followed by a 50th year of Jubilee. Now in those years, let's say, let's start with the beginning of the cycle right after Jubilee, say. You got the first to the seventh year, and then you got the eighth to the fourteenth, see, two, two cycles there. Let's start with the first one. All families receive back at the Jubilee all the land that they were given when they went into the land. So now it's in the hands of the original owners. And they have it to have and to use for the next 49 years if they don't go broke out of laziness or waste or whatever and lease it out to somebody else. And within that structure, there is a relief. Every seven years, if people have borrowed from you, if they've not been able to pay it back, you are to release that debt. So that every seven years, all debts are released. Couldn't go owing more than seven years. And this happened... Seven times seven years. There were seven relief valves in a 50-year period. And in the 50th year, not only all monetary or other debts, but even any land debts were released. Wouldn't that be a beautiful system if it were followed through all the way? And then within that, you had a financial system God set up to go with it whereby everyone was looked after and all the commitments of God to God were able to be covered. And he set that up in a series or a system of tithing and offerings. I will show you that there were three tithes mentioned in the law of Moses. Three different ones. We have, for simplicity's sake, called them first, second, and third tithes. Uh, They're not called that in Scripture. It's just easier to number things, 1, 2, 3, or A, B, C. By use, they were called, the first one would be defined as uh, the Levitical tithe, or the tithe to God given to the Levites. We summarize it to say, first tithe. There was another one, which would be called the festival tithe, because it was used to keep all of God's festivals. So, we call it second tithe today, but festival tithe would be more declining. Then there was a third tithe, which was only kept on the third and sixth years of the seven-year cycle. And it was, we call it third tithe, But in those days, and in scripture, it's called the Levite, widow, fatherless, stranger, tithe. And widow. Widow, fatherless, stranger, and the Levite tithe. By definition, in scripture. So, these three tithes are distinguished by usage. When when we speak of first tithe, it was to be given to God through the Levites. It wasn't to be given to the widow, the stranger, the poor, or uh, uh, the fatherless. But another is designated for that. So, by that, you see that there had to have been these three. I have here a little book entitled, Tithing in Scripture. And I want to show you some things from this. Because he uses the scripture, and he also then uses some historical data, because some people would say, well, how do you find three ties in the Bible? Well, I can show you the scriptures, and I will. But he goes to some historical things on top of the scriptures to show that that was actually the way they understood it, and the way that they actually practiced it, as a matter of historical record. Maybe it would be good to read the scriptures. Well, he, he has them in order here. We'll read them as we go. We, we may assume that God directed from the first that a tenth of man's increase would be a fitting proportion to render to himself as the great Lord of all. Then, not only do we find nothing in Genesis to conflict with a theory of this kind... But on the contrary, we see several passages connected with patriarchal religion that seem to confirm such an idea and to make the assumption highly probable. Isn't that basically what I just said about Abraham and Jacob? Now, we're going to read from Leviticus 23, verse 30. I turn there. And all the tithe of the land... Whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy unto the eternal. And if a man will redeem aught of his tithe, he shall add unto it the fifth part thereof. In other words, if you have a lamb or a sheep that's born and you would like to keep that one rather than give it, then you have to add 20% of the value to it in order to redeem it and keep it for yourself. And all the tithe of the herd of the flock, whatsoever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy to the eternal. Well, you can redeem some things. It uh, It wasn't the animals, was it? He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and that for which it is changed shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. He says from this passage we learn. A tenth of the produce of the land, whether of seed or fruit, was claimed by God. And was to be regarded as holy, or set apart for him. That if the offerer wished to retain this tenth of seed or fruit, he might do so by paying its value and adding thereto one fifth. That every tenth calf and lamb, any increased herd or flock, was to be set apart for God. That this form of animal tithe might not be redeemed, nor the animals exchanged, But if an owner notwithstanding presumed to change the tithe animal, then both the tithe animal and that for which it was exchanged were to be forfeited and set apart for God. So you simply couldn't do it, and if you tried to do it anyway, you had to give them both. I doubt if anybody tried that. Now, what was done with this tithe? Here we can go to Numbers 28, verse 21. Numbers 28, 21. And to the children of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithes in Israel for an inheritance, and return for their service which they serve, even the service of the tent of meeting. And henceforth the children of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance." For the tithe of the children of Israel, which they offer as a heave offering to the eternal, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Okay. The tithe is shown to be given here to the Levites. Hence this first, or Lord's tithe, is known also as the Levites' tithe. The words, in that sense, are interchangeable. Which it may be convenient here to notice. That from this tithing, no produce of land or increase of herd or flock is accepted, whatever was an increase of the land. that the offerer had no voice in its disposal. It was simply to be given in charge of the Levites. It was the Lord's tithe. Now, you and I, over the years and the decades, have argued that we didn't like the way the first tithe was being spent. And they laid it on us pretty often that we had no say in that. Did it mean, however, that they could not have been amusing and misusing it anyway, and living in ways that God did not want them to live? That was something they were accountable for, not something that you and I as tithe payers were accountable for. We were only accountable for giving it. They were accountable to God in how it was used. It was theirs. It was given to the Levites for their sustenance, for their living. Some people resent that. But that's the way God did it. This tithe was not an amount that might be diminished, or an alms that the owners might render, or not as he pleased, but a divine claim, the withholding of which was regarded by God as dishonest. So you're stealing from God, under Mosaic law, if you don't give a full tenth. Now I know some of the objections are, that was the Mosaic law, and that was to the Levite, but the ministry today is not Levitical. That's one of the main arguments that comes up. We'll get to that. Well, consider that. I'm just laying out for you right now the way that it was. Okay? Now, we proceed to a second tithe. This is mentioned in Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 22, 22. You shall surely tithe all the increase of your seed that which comes forth of your field year by year, And you shall eat before the Eternal your God in the place which he shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, the tithe of your corn, your wine, your oil, and the firstlings of your herd and of your flock, that you may learn to fear the Eternal your God always. And if the way be too long for you, and you are not able to carry it, because the place is too far which the Eternal your God shall choose to set his name there, when the Eternal your God shall bless you, then you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and shall go to the place which eternal your God shall choose. And you shall bestow the money for whatsoever your soul desires, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or whatsoever your soul asks of you. And you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice you and your household, and the Levite that is within your gates. That's different than giving it to the Levites, isn't it? This is not ten percent that you give to anybody, is it? It's 10% that you keep yearly, and it does say yearly, not every third year, but yearly. Some claim you don't have to tithe at all, but every third year. What, pray tell, do they do with the scripture? Do you only go to the feast every third year because you only tithe every three years? It says clearly it's a yearly thing. And God of the holy days says three times every year, three times in the year. shall you go up before God to keep his feasts. So it's not every third year. It's an annual thing. First time it says all of your increase doesn't make any exceptions for different years. All of your increase, and that's what Abraham and Jacob promised God as well. And then this second tithe, this festival tithe, is annually. It was to be eaten by the offer, his household and the Levite, the firstlings of herd and flock, but only at the appointed place of worship. So you see, by the usage, that it had to be something different than the first tithe. It had to be an additional tithe. And it was for the feasts. And you were to eat and rejoice before God with it. The due payment of the second tithe involved a stay of at least a week each at the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, as well as a shorter period at the Feast of Weeks. And perhaps we need to address the Passover. We used to keep it seven days, a week, and then go home. And that was stopped. And I'm wondering if we should not go back to that. That is what Christ did. That is what the early Testament church did. And it's what ancient Israel did. That's a different subject. We'll get to that at another time. It will help us better to understand this second or festival tithe, as it is sometimes called, if we consider the end it was to serve. The purpose, in other words. All the males in Israel, with their families if they chose, were to assemble at the sanctuary three times a year for the worship of God. That's Deuteronomy 12, 6, and 7. Which reads, Deuteronomy 12, 6, and 7, And thither you shall bring your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, and the heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herd, and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your household. So, you're to use it at the feast. Now, I submit to you that one of the abuses that we had in the was not keeping the second tithe. We were to keep that, to go before God and to worship Him three times in the year. No problem with that. I think where the abuse came was when they would get us to the feast and try to extract our second tithe from us. Now God said you were to go and eat and drink that whichever your heart desired. He says very clearly that you were to take care of the widow and the orphan, the Levites, and eat yourself. But as a church, administratively, I think we abused that by saying, you can put it in the offering, and when the feast is over, if you haven't spent it all, you must turn it into Pasadena. The Scripture does not say that. It says, be sure the widow, the orphan, and the Levite are taken care of, and be sure you are taken care of. There is nothing in here which says you need to give it to anybody except those categories of people that they might eat at the feast. Therefore, we do not, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles or Passover, say, well, whatever second tithe you've got left over, turn it in now. I believe that was an abuse. Now, if you have complied with this scripture, you have taken care of your family and yourself, the widow, the orphan, and the Levite. When the feast ends, if that money has not all been used, I see no reason that you are not free to put it back in your pocket, take it home, and use it for whatever you wish. You have complied with God's instructions. You can only eat so much at the feast. And you can only pour so much food down a widow or an orphan or a preacher. And your other festival expenses, such as your room and your transportation and so on. If you have money left after that, does anyone see an objection to putting it back in their pockets? I do not. It is money that is left over. It is money that you could not spend. Now, we fabricated ways of doing it by having (laughs) peace sites on cruise ships, and you could fly all over the world to be sure you got your second pie spent. And if you still couldn't spend it all, then you had to turn it in. Now, does that mean, if we do it that way, that you can take that second tithe, go and fulfill the obligations by eating one meal a day and staying in a ratty little place so that you can put it back in your pocket at the end of the feast? That would be an attitude on the other side of the ditch. God wants us to have plenty... To enjoy the feast, to eat all we wish to eat of whatever we wish to eat, that is within the law, that doesn't mean unclean foods. Do we have to explain everything we shouldn't? No. But these days, who knows? Be sure, because those festivals represent something very important to God. His plan of salvation, his kingdom, his financial system, and prosperity for all. That's what they represent. The Feast of tabernacles represents the millennium, in which there will be peace and plenty and prosperity for everyone. Now, God commanded that time of those people. Does it apply today? Has yet to be answered. But it was the plan that God had in place very clearly in Scripture. Now, over the years and decades, I've seen people who would not keep their second side faithfully, and then they would be scrambling before the feast to find money to go to the feast. They wouldn't pay their bills and grab their last paycheck and run. That was anti-God. That was anti-Scripture. That was poor financial planning and disobedience, and I submit to you, sin. When God says you shall surely do something, whether it be first time, you are to do that. Not occasionally, or when the urge strikes you, or when you think you can afford it, but always. And the same is true of the second time. It is to be put aside. In other words, God expects you to control yourself and to manage your funds properly. Not just sort of fly by the seat of your pants and take whatever's there to go keep his peace. Now, how do you picture the millennium? Do we not have to plan ahead for God's kingdom? Do we not have to change our lives? Do we not have to manage things properly in order to be in his kingdom? Yes, we do. No liar, no thief, no drunkard, no adulterer will be in God's kingdom just the way it is. God's the one that judges that. Has America, have the nations of Israel gotten away from this plan? Yes, they did. They got away almost immediately. And they suffered. They did adopt financial plans from the world. ever economic plan was popular at the moment. And they went into captivity and death as a result of it. Now this is a good system that God said. Now I want to mention something here. How much does the U.S. government require of you? Depends on your tax bracket, 25, 30, 40 percent. And that's just in income taxes. That doesn't include gasoline taxes, food taxes, uh, real estate taxes, automobile taxes, tax upon tax upon tax. I'll bet the true tax burden on an American citizen today, let's say he's in a 40% category, at least another 20% of his money goes to taxes of some form. Sales tax in town, county sales tax, tax on schools, tax on this, tax on that. They just tack on tax. You're paying far more in America today than God ever required of the Israelites. We need to put that into perspective and understand that his system, which people say was terrible and onerous, is not nearly as parable as what we pay in America today. Every gallon of gasoline you buy has approximately a 40 cent tax on it. About a third of the cost of that gas. And it's higher in some places. So if you're in a 40% tax bracket and you want to add 30% tax on your gasoline, there's 70% of that dollar gone so the second festival tithe was to ensure that we have the resources to go up and worship God who gave us what everything we have: the universe the earth The land, the water, the fish, the fowl, the animals, the breath we breathe. Now, is it that big a deal if he says, I want 10% to be set aside wholly for me? And I want to be sure you worship me the way I want to be worshipped, so I'm going to have you set aside a second 10%, and you will use that to come and worship before me with a high hand, and you can enjoy all the things that you might not have the money to enjoy the rest of the year. I see no thing, nothing wrong with that so far to you. sounds like a pretty good point. Now we come to another one. Deuteronomy 14, verse 28. Deuteronomy 14, verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase in the same year, and shall lay it up within your gates. Now, this isn't something you sinned in. Now, the potential for abuse was there and was utilized by Worldwide. What did we do with our third tithe in Worldwide Church of God? We sent it into headquarters. Now, that violates the very first thing God says about this particular tithe. You shall lay it up within your gates. And the Levites, because he has no fortune or inheritance with you, the Levites were given 10% of the land's produce because they were not given land. That is not farmland. And the Levite, because he has no or heritage of you, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within your gates, shall come, and shall eat, and be satisfied, that the eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. <coughs> now this author teaches, says that this teaches the following things. A tenth of every third year's increase was to be laid up at home. This tenth was to be shared by the local Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. That separates it from the first tithe, doesn't it? That was to be given to the Levites. This had a totally different use, therefore it had to be a totally different time. And it was only in the third and the sixth years of the seven-year cycle. You didn't hide the seventh year on produce because you didn't plant and you didn't harvest. So they kept it on the third and the sixth year, skipped the seventh year, and kept it again on the third and the sixth year of each seven-year cycle, leading up to the Jubilee. This tenth was to be shared by the local Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. The object of this tithe was that Jehovah might bless the work of the tithe-payer's hands. Some think this was not a third tithe, but a triennial substitute for the second tithe, so that in the third and again the sixth years, as well as the seventh year, the Israelite would not take the second or festival tithe of the sanctuary, but would dispose of it among the poor at home. Now that conflicts, though, and is a contradiction of what we just read about the second tithe. It was to be kept every year, and you were to go to the feast every year. not skip the feast the third year, and give it to the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the stranger at home. There's nothing in Scripture. There are people who argue it, but nothing in Scripture to show it. Selden and Michaelis, these are some ancient, or, or I don't know who they were, but it says that these men also argue in the same direction, saying that the third tide would be an excessive demand upon the income of a man who had already extended two tenths of his increase. Peak likewise says it may be urged that it is not probable that a double tribute should be exacted from the crops. And again, nor is it probable that a tax of nearly one-fifth of the whole produce should be imposed on the farmers. Why not? The U.S. government exacts more than that. And this was only in the third and the sixth year, <coughs> to be sure that the poor were taken care of. You laid it up in your house. You didn't give it to anyone except those who were supposed to have it. And you should have enough from keeping a third tithe in the third and sixth years that you would keep it laid up at your house so that any widow or orphan or stranger within your gates or your local Levite, if they had need, you would have money there to take care of them throughout that period of time. In other words, the third year tithe was to be set aside, and you should still have it through the fourth and fifth years until the sixth year came and you saved it again. And it should be there, laid up in storage, for the purposes for which God set it apart. That's what it's there for. Again, it requires you to manage. It requires you not to be a thief and say, oh, there's that third tithe. I have need now, but I'll pay it back. Yeah, when pigs fly, is the way that has gone. Actually, headquarters made it easy on us, didn't they? They just said, soon as you're going to send it to us, we'll manage it for the widow and the Martha. No. God wants you to keep it. He wants you to manage it. You to take care of those people. It's your obligation. Now, he lists several people here, and I want to use these simply for the historical emphasis, but this is the way that it was used. The author of Tobit, for instance, when stating how he walked in the ways of truth and righteousness, notwithstanding the falling away of his father's family from God's command to sacrifice at Jerusalem, makes this subject say, I alone, this is a quote from the book of Tobit, I alone went often to Jerusalem at the feast, as it has been ordained unto all Israel by an everlasting decree, having the first fruits and the tenths of my increase, and that which was first shorn, and I gave them at the altar to the priests, the sons of Aaron. The tenth part of all my increase I gave to the sons of Levi who administered at Jerusalem. And the second part, or the second tenth part, I sold away and went and spent it each year at Jerusalem for the peace. And the third I gave to them for whom it was meet, as Deborah, my father's mother, had commanded me. <coughs> Josephus is quite clear. Another. Right. A Besides those two tithes, which I have already said you are to pay every year, the one for the Levites, the other for the festivals, you are to bring every third year a tithe to be distributed to those that want, to women also that are widows, and to children that are orphans. That's Josephus, the Antiquities, book 4. After Josephus, we have the testimony of Jerome, who, like the preceding two witnesses, lived in Palestine. Jerome says, one tithe was given to the Levites, out of which they gave a tenth to the priests. That also is spiritual. You turned it into the Levites, the ten percent, the first tithe, and then one-tenth of that first tithe was given to the house of Aaron as the high priest. So Aaron's family received one percent of the entire produce of the land every year. And the rest of the Levites uh, shared the other nine percent. That's clearly in Scripture. And <clears throat> it was called a tithe of the tithe. Now, we extracted that and used it in the second tithe system that was in Worldwide to say that you sent a tithe of your second tithe into Pasadena to take care of the costs of getting widows there and paying for halls and ministers to eat steak and drive fine cars and so on. Now, I don't have an objection to that, in a sense. Second tithe is to keep the feast. And <clears throat> we do have to hire halls. We do have certain expenses. In this organization, we've been small, and those expenses have not been very large, so I've taken it out of the regular operating first tithe. But it would, I think, be a legitimate second tithe usage, except that It didn't get always used for that. It got spent in very profligate ways, and ways much higher or more expensive than the average person was able to enjoy. And I think that that was an abuse and a misuse. And it's not something that is required, so it's not something we do. You've never been asked for your tithe of your tithe here, have you? I doubt you ever will be. So Jer- Jerome says one tithe was given to the Levites, out of which they gave a tenth to the priests. A second tithe was applied to festival purposes, and a third was given to the poor. Uh, then he uses one more for a modern opinion to the same purpose. He uses Dr. Pusey, late Regius Professor of Hebrew at Oxford, who preaching on Ash Wednesday at St. Paul's Knights Bridge, is quoted thus. The Pharisee paid tithes of all which he possessed, a double tithe you will recollect, one for God's priests, uh, and then he goes on and mentions the second and the third tithe. So, we can read the scriptures and try to piece together what the first, second, and third tithe were about, but then we have on top of that historians who say that that system which we adopted in worldwide was indeed what they were doing in ancient history that it was pieced together properly, that the uses of the different ties are clearly seen to be different one from another, that they cannot be substituted in terms of Scripture. Are we really getting that close to being done? Well, I may talk a lot, but it's only once a week. All right, let's see where I need to go. Let's discuss a little bit the situation with the first, second, and third as done by Worldwide. I've already mentioned some abuses, but let me cover this briefly and then we'll get to some other things about whether it is still uh, valid today, next week, and in what form and fashion it might be valid if it is. I want to go through that very carefully with you. Now, the first tithe was simply sent in, and that was to be given to the Levites, whoever they may or may not be today. It's where that application would be made. It wasn't something you kept, it was something you gave. And there were no strings attached, you simply gave it to God because of the thankful, being thankful for what he had done for you and what he has done for all of us. All the, earth, all the earth, all the gold, all the silver is mine, says the eternal. He gives it to us to use for about 70, 80 years. And he expects us to show him honor and praise and respect by giving back a tenth, which he uses for the work of the ministry, for the uh, living of the Levites. At least that is the way it was anciently done. He showed a great deal of respect for the Levitical priesthood, Because the Levitical priesthood was there for a purpose. It was there to turn those people's minds and hearts to God. That was their purpose for being on earth. It was their calling on earth. And to God, that is a very important function. So instead of having a mail chute where the money, the tithe would go up to heaven... God said, it's mine, but I'm giving it to the Levites so that they might turn you to me. So they did not have to go out and make a living and farm or whatever, be carpenters or whatever. But they would have their living provided so that they could have time to think, to study, to read, to pray, to prepare, so that they might turn the people to God. That was their function and purpose. That it was done through animal sacrifices and they became basically butchers Uh, is neither here nor there because they had to provide all these sacrifices day in and day out and on the Sabbath and on the feast days and so on. So cutting throats became one of their primary functions because people sinned a lot and God needed lots of offerings and lots of sacrifices. But that went with the territory. Now, it was said in Worldwide that we did not need to pay tithe, first tithe on pensions and Social Security. Uh, If you did, in other words, as we earn money through our lives, we should be, or should have been, all our lives really, if we understood, giving a tithe to God. Therefore, we would have tithed on that money... Before the government ever took it out, if we were paying tithes on uh, our full paycheck before the government took out all that it takes out in taxes and withholding and so on, and they insisted that we pay it on the gross, not the net. Therefore, when you retired, if you had been paying on the gross all that time, you had already tithed on a lot of money that the government took out for withholding and social security. Now, if you were tithing on the net all those years, then you would not have tithed on the withholding of the Social Security, correct? God wants us to tithe on all our increase. So, if we were paying on the net, then when we get a Social Security check, we still owe God's tithe out of that which was withheld. If we paid on the gross, which is what, headquarters wanted because they got bigger checks, then we've already tithed on our pension or our social security when it comes. So that, I think, has to be left up to some degree to personal conscience. Some of us did not come into the church until we were already 50, 60, 70 years of age, and it spent our whole lives not tithing. Do we have to go back then and tithe on everything that we earned before we came into the church? I don't think so. That's not the way God operates. He does not make us go back and pay for our sins. Jesus Christ did that on the stake with his blood. And there is room for mercy and forgiveness in God's plan and purpose. But he's not going to make you go back and tithe on that which you didn't tithe on before you understood. Just like he doesn't make you go back and fix everything that you did wrong before you understood? How are you going to go back and repay all that which you stole before conversion? How are you going to go back and resurrect all those that you might have killed if you were a murderer before your conversion? You can't do it. So, we need to From the time of repentance and understanding, pay attention to whatever form of payment God would have us do at this end time. And we'll get into that next week. I'm reviewing what we did in Worldwide for the moment. Now the festival tithe, we don't say the tithe of the tithe, nor do we give then that which is left over to the church. We take it, we use it. We fulfill God's instruction for what that money is to be used to the full. And once we have fully done what God says to do with that money, if there's some left over, I see no problem with putting it in your pocket. You have done what God said to do. Should you eat six times a day in order to get it all spent? Should you drink far more And you can drink and still walk properly? No, because drunkenness is condemned. Well, there's some left. It's left. And you've eaten all that you should eat, and you've had all the drink that you should drink. And you've had all the staying in motels, perhaps, and transportation that you need, and there's some left. God is silent on what you do with that, so I would assume you can put it back in your pocket. And the third tithe, you are supposed to manage carefully and be sure that you have enough to take care of the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, and the Levite through a three-year period. God does not require a third tithe every year, but he wants to be sure the widow, the orphan, and those in that category are taken care of. Now, on third tithe, we were to send it all in. Was that necessary? No, he says lay it up. Now, I wonder, and this again could be according to your conscience, and it needs to be according to your calculation, but third tithe was something that was instituted in Israel to take care of all those people who might be poor or without husband or father or whatever. Does the United States government take care of that for you? Is that requirement being met by the government? That is something I think we have to consider. Our taxes, in great part, go take care of widows and orphans welfare, if you will. And the government extracts that from us and keeps it for us to give to them instead of allowing us to keep it and give to the widow personally. Now, you have to consider where you are if you're to follow this line of thinking. There are some countries in this world who do not have programs for the poor and the widow and the orphan. And none of the money that is given in taxes goes for that some countries the dictator just puts it in his pocket or in his Swiss bank and the poor receive none of it in a case like that let's say in some African country where you have a dictator like uh, there in or Mugabe excuse me uh, there in uh, uh, Zimbabwe He lets the people starve to death while he lines his pockets. I would submit to you that under that government, your third-tide obligation has not been met by the government. But in countries such as Canada and the United States, where we are welfare states for the most part, the government extracts that money from you, uh, whatever percentage they take, and they take it every year. And give it to the widow and the fatherless was So, it could be the third tithe is taken care of for us. Not the way I would want, not the way perhaps it should be, but that may be the way the government of Israel is doing it today. Just as they're doing the same thing in a sense that the church was doing. Taking it from you and giving it to whomsoever they thought it should happen. Instead of you making the judgment of who should receive that third tithe. Now, to me, that is a better system because it teaches you management, it teaches you proper mercy and love, it teaches you to take care of the needs of people that you see. So that is what God intended, and that was the best. Now, the government sort of decides who gets it and how much they get, and that's taken out of our hands in that sense. But I'm saying that the obligation to God, or to Scripture, might be already being fulfilled by the Canadian or American governments. On the other hand, we need to be sure that among ourselves, even if we don't save the third tithe, the government takes it away from us and gives it to the orphans, and many of our people right here sitting in this room receive welfare checks, Medicare uh, care, uh, housing uh, allotments from the government. So the government is taking care of the poor in the land. But we need to be aware of those who might be poor and help where help is needed among those among ourselves to be sure that it's taken care of. We can't entrust it entirely to the government, in other words. But I don't know that I have a conscience problem with saying in America's society today that our third tithe is taken care of for us. Now, if you feel that you still should pay it, on top of that, I have no objection to that either. But the government does not take care of second time for us, nor does it take care of first time for us, but it may take care of third time. You may have to let your conscience be your guide to some degree on that. All right, with that discussion, let's stop there for today and we'll get into Uh, the New Testament, and into whether or not these things are required there. But I wanted to review what we've done in the past, why we did it, and why the system is there the way that it is, that it is both biblical and it is scriptural. Now we'll face the questions of, is it also New Testament, and is it in time? We'll get to that next week, God willing.